Welcome to the Weekend Bite presented by the Wall Street Breakfast. I'm Daniel Snyder, and thank you for tuning in this week. So what is the Weekend Bite? It's your one-stop shop to know what the biggest stories were that moved markets this week. But it's much more than that. Each week, we're going to bring you one of our Marketplace authors to share the inside scoop on what they're watching and some of the moves they're making. So let's kick things off with the top news items from this week. For the third time in just two months, AT&T and Verizon have delayed the launch of their 5G networks around key U.S. airports. Combined, the two companies spent nearly $70 billion on C-band spectrum rights in the FCC auction last October, not to mention the additional capital spent on their 5G marketing efforts thus far. Airlines in the U.S. and around the world are scrambling to adjust their scheduled flights in the meantime, while the FAA begins updating its guidance on which airports and aircraft models will be affected by the latest changes. The FAA worries that the new cellular frequencies could endanger aircraft by throwing off radio altimeter readings, a key device used in measuring the distance between the aircraft and the ground. You might be wondering, where the, where's the third largest telecom carrier in this battle? Well. T-Mobile's C-band licenses don't become available until late 2023. Seems they dodged a bullet here. Next up, Microsoft announced this week that it has struck a deal to acquire video game company Activision at $95 per share, equaling about $69 billion. This would be the biggest acquisition ever by Microsoft. According to CNBC's Andrew Ross Sorkin, the companies have disclosed there is a breakup fee of about $3 billion dollars. The large breakup fee appears to indicate that the companies believe they will be able to secure antitrust approval and the companies share the full intent of completing the deal. The Wall Street Journal also reported that CEO Bobby Kotick is expected to step down from Activision once the company is officially acquired. Last but not least, bringing in the Friday, Netflix stock is down around 20% today as the shares went into their biggest decline in years after the streaming giant's fourth quarter earnings disappointed investors. The company mentioned... While retention and engagement remain healthy, acquisition growth has not yet reaccelerated to pre-COVID levels. Netflix had internally expected to add 8.5 million new subscribers in the quarter ending in December. And while there was 8.2 million subs added, the street wasn't thrilled with the miss. The most worrisome part of the four investors is that the company is taking a lighter forecast, which is 2.86 million new subs expected for the first quarter of 2022. But let's not forget that earnings season is just getting started. I'd like to go ahead and bring in Eric Bazmachin from EPV Macro Research, a marketplace service here on Seeking Alpha, to discuss the, micro envi- the macro environment and his most recent note he released to his audience. Eric, thanks for joining us. Now, in this Secular Trends update for Q1 2022 that you just put out, you cover the topic of total population growth declining and how that is going to majorly affect the total growth in the years to come. And I also know that you're not the only one talking about this, as Elon Musk has been tweeting about this as well. So what do you think investors need to keep in mind going forward in regards to our population growth slowing? Yeah, and it's good to be with you again. Uh, So just to set the context, um, I cover what I call secular economic trends, which impact uh, the economy and asset prices in the three to five year plus window. And then I also cover cyclical economic trends, which impact the economy and asset prices in that shorter term six to 18 month window. And when we talk about secular economic trends or these long term slow moving forces that sort of 
set the gravitational force in the economy. What we're really looking at is demographics or population growth, like you mentioned, and, and debt levels. So in terms of population growth, we're, we're, we're talking about this three to five year window, this sort of gravitational force that's going to be that's going to be on the economy for the next several years. And the Census Bureau just put out a, a report for 2021 population growth that showed that population growth was the slowest. It was 0.1 percent. It was the slowest population growth rate since 1900. So over the last 120 years, it was the slowest population growth rate. And you might think that it's just because of COVID that there was excess deaths. And that is true. Excess deaths from the pandemic did contribute to weaker population growth. But it was also a collapse in births. The birth rate is falling pretty significantly. And what's also notable is that the population growth didn't spike down like this was a one-off year. The population growth rate has been coming down year after year after year after year. So this is a trend that's been going on in the economy. And if the population growth rate is coming down, if there's less people, that means there's less people working or the labor force growth rate is going to come down. And the labor force or the growth rate in the labor force is very tightly correlated to the potential growth rate in the economy. It's also very correlated to the long-term rate of inflation. When you look in this three to five year window, or if you're looking a little longer in the five to 10 year window, almost all the trends in the economy are very tightly correlated to the trends in the labor force or the labor force growth rate. So the labor force growth rate is going to continue to trend lower. It's been trending lower since the 1980s. And what that's going to do is it's going to put continued downward pressure on the growth rate in the economy. It's going to put downward pressure on the inflation rate in the economy. And this is the trend that's been causing interest rates to decline steadily since 1980. It's not, it's not a coincidence that the labor force growth rate peaked in 1980 and interest rates peaked in the 1980s, and it's been declining ever since. This is also why the Federal Reserve, when they go on these tightening cycles, Every single cycle peaks at a lower interest rate and then troughs at a lower interest rate. We have these lower highs and lower lows in the federal funds rate all the way down to the point where we're at the zero bound. So this population growth rate phenomenon is going to continue. Population growth rate is going to fall. That means the labor force growth rate over the foreseeable future is going to continue to decline. And that's going to put persistent downward pressure on economic growth, on inflation, and on interest rates. Yeah. And it's kind of wild to me that we haven't been talking about this up to this point in time. Like we knew there was the baby boomers and now that generation is entering retirement and people love to discuss the transfer of wealth that is coming, but no one is talking about the population growth declining until now, it seems like. It's a great point. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's not just the growth rate of the population that's important. It's very important, but it's also the composition or the age structure. So there's a, uh, a very consistent curve in terms of consumption. If you bucket the uh, uh, demographics by age cohort, so you know 25 to 54, and then 54 to 65, and 65 to 75, as uh, you're younger, consumption starts to rise. And then total consumption peaks in the 44 to 55-year-old age bracket. And then after 55, consumption starts to trail off. And then after 65, consumption really starts to fall. And this is on average. 
So as you mentioned, the population is getting older. The share of the population that's 65 and older is rising rapidly. That's also going to put a downward uh, force on aggregate consumption growth. So the population growth rate is slowing and the age composition is getting older. Both of those forces together are going to put uh, a lot of downward pressure on the secular or structural trend growth in the economy. And again, this is the three to five plus year window. Of course, we can have cyclical ups and downs that, that happen on top of that trend. So you know, if, I, if I can just add one more point, the example would be from uh, 2009 through uh, 2020 before the pandemic. That was one long economic expansion. It's famous because it was the weakest economics expansion since the World War II era. Part of the reason, a large reason why it was one of the weakest is because the demographics were the weakest. It was very slow population growth. The population was aging. But within that 10-year period, we had sort of booms and busts or cyclical ups and downs. We had a, we had a, a bust from 2014 through 2016 where oil went to $20 a barrel. And then we had a big cyclical upturn from 2016 to 2018. And then we had a downturn from 2018 through uh, 2020, the economy was actually in a downturn as COVID was was starting. So structural trends, secular trends, and then on top of that, we layer these cyclical trends, which is the other time frame. Now, I'd like to switch gears to the other topic that you've been pounding the table on for months, at least that I know of. Maybe it's been longer. But we definitely covered this at the end of last year on the Seeking Alpha program, and that is the Fed being stuck in such an interesting scenario, having to tighten monetary policy into the secular and cyclical decline and growth that you know we're seeing and what you're talking about. So what do you consider the repercussions of this being, and where should investors consider putting their money to work? Or do they stay in cash? Yeah. So right off the bat, you know, every time they try and tighten, they're going to have a harder and harder time relative to the last tightening cycle because the demographics are worse and the debt levels are higher. Therefore, they're going to have a more difficult time tightening. Uh, on top of that, though, we have a cyclical downturn in economic growth also. And these cyclical trends, I don't define by, by an opinion. I take an objective measure of uh, income, consumption, employment, and production, what I call the four corners of the economy. And I don't make up the indicators. I take them straight from the National Bureau of Economic Research, the same indicators that they use to date business cycles. So we're looking at, at all four corners of the economy, and we combine that into one index. I call this a coincident index because the peaks and troughs coincide with the peaks and troughs in the business cycle. So we take this coincident index, this measure of real growth, and what we see is that the real growth rate in the economy peaked in April of 2021. We had a huge snapback after the COVID lockdowns. So from April 2020 through April 2021, the growth rate in the economy was rising. And it's the direction that's important. So the growth rate was rising. In April 2021, the growth rate peaked and the growth rate's been coming down since then, and it's still declining. And this is not just a benign return to trend. This is a cyclical slowdown that's going on, and it's set to continue. So what we have here is the Federal Reserve trying to tighten policy into this secular and cyclical slowdown. And one of the points that I've been making uh, since uh, the Fed started to move in this hawkish direction, which was in September of October of last year, is that when the Fed tightens policy into a cyclical slowdown, 
that's a, almost a guaranteed recipe for volatility across risk assets. And we're, we're definitely seeing that over the last couple of weeks. So uh, the other sure bet that you can have, or as close to sure as it could be, is that when the Fed is tightening policy into a cyclical slowdown, the yield curve tends to flatten because the Fed's guiding that they're going to push the short-term interest rates higher, but the long-term interest rates are responding to the declining economic growth. So the yield curve flattens. So whenever I see economic growth slowing, Federal Reserve aside, I always position defensively. And to me, that means less exposure to equities or an underweight exposure to equities. And the equities that you do have want to be tilted towards your defensive type equities. So your utilities, your consumer staples, your uh, large cap, uh, uh, safe dividend payer, low volatility stocks. This is not the time that you want to be in your uh, high momentum, highly leveraged, high beta equity sectors. So defensive to me means underweight equities and the equities that you do have, you want to tilt them defensively. It also means that uh, your uh, bond allocation should be overweight. You increase your allocation to treasury bonds and you specifically want to overweight the long end of the curve. So uh, ETFs for that would be like TLT has a duration of about 18 and EDV has a duration of 25. So you want to tilt your bond allocation towards longer duration bonds to capitalize on price appreciation on the economic slowdown. Now, I just want to make the point that these are treasury bonds. They're long duration treasury bonds. They are extremely volatile. Uh, EDV, the 25-year duration, has volatility that can exceed the S&P 500 at times. So it's not like these are um, uh, short-term or intermediate-term uh, treasury bonds that, that don't have a lot of volati uh, volatility. These securities can whip around. So if the economy accelerates and interest rates rise, these, these securities will go down in value. But if the economy continues to slow and the Federal Reserve amplifies that slowdown by tightening monetary policy, then the long end of the treasury curve, the 20-year, the 30-year treasury rate is going to fall and that's going to lead to price appreciation for the long duration securities like TLT and EDV. Good point. I'm going to throw you a curveball. Any thoughts on emerging markets? So again, so I test all of these sectors, sectors, style factors. So we, I have a, I have a, a breakdown of these cyclical upturns and these cyclical downturns in economic growth. And we can go back 20 years, 30 years, as, as far as you want. We can date these cyclical upturns and these cyclical downturns. They tend to last six to 18 months on average, which is why I focus on that window. And when you're in a cyclical downturn, emerging markets or international in general tends to underperform. And domestic or US-based companies tend to outperform. And it's a little bit counterintuitive, right? The US economy is slowing. Why would domestic companies perform better than international? The reason is because the US economic cycle uh, is so dominant over the global economic cycle that when the US economy is slowing, it's almost a sure bet that the global economy is slowing. And then these countries are, 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 uh, have less strength than the U.S. economy in terms of uh, uh, aggregate economic output. So they tend to slow uh, a little bit harder. And they're also more cyclical economies because they're less consumption-based and more manufacturing or production-based. So if the U.S. economy is slowing and U.S. consumption is slowing, that creates a slowdown in global manufacturing. And that tends to weigh on the international 
uh, equities and international bonds more so than, than the U.S. So when you're in a growth rate downturn, you want to favor U.S. or domestic companies and bonds over international domestic companies. Uh, uh, over international, excuse me. Yeah, that's right. It also works for currencies as well. So when you're in a downturn, the U.S. dollar tends to rise against the uh, international or foreign currencies. Yeah, absolutely. And I know earlier this week, Seeking Alpha had reported about even China's economy seeing a downturn in growth as well. So it makes you wonder, which is why I asked that question. As always, Eric, you bring the heat and I know our audience appreciate it, appreciates it. You have a good weekend and we'll talk again here soon. All right. All right. Thanks so much. Now, there's no way we can skip over one of the biggest news items of this week. And here to tell us more is Seeking Alpha's managing editor, Kim Khan. Hey, Kim. Hey, it's it's great to be here. And um, I we've just heard about a longer term secular economic uh, theory that I, I think is very important for investors to hear. But I'm here to tell you about the real short term stuff, which is that the Nasdaq just hit correction territory. And the, the typical definition of a uh, correction is 10% at, down 10% from the highs, which the Nasdaq and the Nasdaq 100 hit. And now people are wondering if it's going to be like, you know, is this kind of like a climbing wall of worry? Is this kind of blowing up the froth or yeah, and moving onwards? Or is it, you know, more of a, a downturn that's going to happen? with like our previous guest said um you know with the fed hiking into a slowing economy it's tough what we really need to focus on is real yields which is kind of a boring thing for for stock good investors to hear about but if you look at the at the bond market real yields have surged now they they were like that if you look at the 10 year real yield is measured by the treasury inflicted treasury um uh, so the inflation protected treasury bonds, um, you see it's gone from negative 1.5, 1 1.05% down to negative 0.6%, still negative, but that's a, you know, that's a huge 40 basis point move. And the last time the NASDAQ had a correction uh, was in um, when in, I think, February 21, uh, when bonds had a similar move where, you know, rate, you know, yields just moved much higher. And so basically with a with a, with the stock market in the so, you know, contained to these big money uh, mega caps that rely on future earnings, um, the higher the interest rates go, the less investors want to be in them. It's like, you know, it's the, the story is long duration bonds. Yeah, which is actually what Eric was just referring to. Now, I want to ask you, having been around in the dot-com bubble, what do you see as the difference this time in this correction? Well, the big difference for me is, um, and also the big similarity, is Microsoft. Microsoft was there in the dot-com bubble when I covered it and is still here now and is one of the biggest companies in the world. And um, what it's done is used its cash pile to buy Activision this week, and you know it's it's spending upward, you know, possibly seventy billion dollars, and that's only half of the cash it has on its books. I could easily do another seventy billion dollar acquisition and be fine, and and pick up these companies that are struggling in this, you know, in this scenario. So when the the Fed's 
you know, hiking rates. And when yields are going up, that's, you know, when people abandon these like kind of, you know, future growth stocks like uh, Activision, um, who also had its own troubles, um, but also like, you know, other companies like, you know, you know, that are the work from home companies that did really well that are now tumbling. You know, the, you know, Apple could pick up any of these companies for, you know, you know, easily for a discount now. So I think that that will help, you know, help the overall stock market remain, you know, you know, on an upward trajectory for for at least a while until unless it looks like inflation is going out of control or that the Fed has kind of really missed its mark. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think we saw on Seeking Alpha News that the antitrust isn't as heavy on Microsoft, leaving them this wiggle room to make this extra maneuver. But I can't help to think back. It was maybe a year and a half ago now that Microsoft was trying to buy TikTok and they've tried a few other acquisitions. So it's really interesting to see them now make this Activision acquisition or pursuit to complete this acquisition here in the next year or so to bring that in. And especially with all the metaverse talk going on. That's a great point. But I, I think if you look at actually, you got to look, you got to look at the content space. So if you look at uh, um, Disney buying Fox and Marvel, they were, you know, that didn't raise any kind of uh, you know, eyebrows with, uh, uh, with antitrust problems whatsoever, even though they have now with their streaming service, all those big things. So I think that if you look at Activision's content space, um, that's more if, if Microsoft has to divest something, I can't imagine they would ask them to divest their video game service, um, you know, because of this deal. But, you know, it, you know, Sony already has a movie division. They have content. So I think they've got a really good case for this deal to get through. Yeah, that's a great point. Kim, I appreciate you joining us this week. Uh, have a great weekend. All right. Thank you. Now, lastly. I want to take a moment to highlight that Seeking Alpha has just made a subtle but very crucial switch to our ratings on the site, and we couldn't be more excited. As you might remember, our ratings were based on labeling stocks and other investment vehicles as either very bullish, bullish, neutral, bearish, or very bearish. However, you will now see that on symbol pages, these ratings have been enhanced and now simply tell you if these stocks are strong buys, buys, holds, sell, or strong sells. This is just one of the many ways that the team here at Seeking Alpha is enabling you to analyze the vast amounts of information faster so you can find the stocks that are actually worth your time and investment. And that's all for us. Have a great weekend.